Welcome. So glad that you guys are here. Uh, let's jump in th- into things tonight, and let's let's pray. Father, uh, thanks for this evening, and uh, thanks for the opportunity to open the scriptures, to spend some time in your presence. We're excited to encounter you, excited to see what kind of shape you're going to give this church. So we just invite you, Holy Spirit, maybe even right now in your own words, um, if you want, just invite the Spirit of God to come and to just minister to um, your heart, minister to your neighbor, minister to all of us. Um, It's by the Spirit that we understand the Scriptures. It's by the Spirit that we live and move and have our being. So we just invite you, Holy Spirit, to come uh, to speak to us. For some of us, this is like social anxiety. Uh, Come and calm our, our anxious nerves so that we might actually hear from you this evening. In your name, amen. Uh, when I was 17 years old, I encountered God in an extremely powerful way. I'd grown up in the church. I grew up in Sherwood, uh, just down the street from here, and um, gone to church all my life. Maybe this is a similar story for some of you. Uh, but I had never really actually said, okay, this is going to be my own thing, my own faith. And so I kind of did the opposite. In a lot of ways, I pushed God away all throughout high school. I was basically on the hunt for how can I experience the world? I was like, anything that the world has to offer, I want it. And so I just started chasing after all sorts of different things. I started going after uh, things that were probably harmful for me. Um, But I had this radical encounter when I was 17 years old. Uh, My family decided to take a mission trip to Rwanda, Africa. And um, while we were there, we we had uh, this girl that we sponsored that we met. And so um, we got to meet her, and it, it was this kind of amazing moment. You know, you've, maybe if you grew up, yeah, if you, you probably many of you guys experienced this. If you grew up in the 90s, you're like, you had the picture of the sponsor kid on your refrigerator or something like that, and you prayed for them and maybe sent some Christmas gifts every now and then to them. But the idea of actually meeting them was like kind of a little bit far off. And so I got this opportunity to meet this girl that we'd actually been thinking about and praying about all the way across the world. It was a very uh, special time for me. Um, and at that time in my life, I was really angry uh, with God. I didn't know if there was a God. If he was there, I'm mad at you. If you're, if you're not there, whatever. Life sucks. That's just the way it is. And we, we happened to meet this young gal, and she was, uh, ha- had just gotten out of the hospital from being malnourished. And I remember thinking, I was like, okay, so she was malnourished. How did she get malnourished if we're sending you know, all this support to her, Right. And uh, so they explained to us, oh, she got sick, you know, she had malaria, and there was this whole thing. And, 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 and I don't know about you, but I, there was just this justice thing that rose up in my heart. I'm like, that's not right. And I, and I even got to this point in my heart where I thought, wait, so this little girl's done nothing against you, God. And I'm over there with all of the luxuries that, you know, the United States have to offer, and I'm like spitting in your face. If you exist, you are so unjust. And so I remember I got into this bathroom and in the room that I was in, and I sat on the ground and I, I think it was maybe the first time I ever had a real conversation with God. I said, you know what? Um, you should do something about this. And I remember what I, I had this thought. It wasn't my own thought. I, I, at the moment, at that time, I thought, whoa, was that, what was that? I had this thought that just said, that's why I made you, so that you would do something about it. And I was like, whoa. 
See, most of my psyche and the way that I had understood myself was that I wasn't worth anything, and, and I wasn't going to do anything big or great in the world. And I, and I, and I had all this negative self-talk, and so all of a sudden there was a voice that said that he, I was made to do something that would actually make a difference or would actually care about somebody else. What was that? I remember I came back from that trip and I had a couple of buddies, Jake Moyer and Steven Tallman, who I went to high school with. And uh, we just had entered our, or we had just um, about to enter our senior year. And I reach out to them. I'm like, hey, you guys like know God, right? Like you go to church, right? They're like, yeah, we go to church. And I'm like, you don't just go to church. You actually like church, right? They're like, yeah, we like church. I'm like, okay, I had this crazy experience. Can you help me out? And I, and I remember they said, you should come to this thing called the way. I was like, what's the way? They're like, it's a youth revival. I'm like, what's a youth revival? So they take me to this thing on a Friday night. It was over, um, kind of over by Washington Square. It was a college ministry from a church called Solid Rock, which is the church that I ended up working for now called Bridgetown. And um, they, it was this college ministry that was just packed with young people. And there was, I now, I now have language for it. There was the tangible presence of God. You know a difference when you enter a room and you're like, it's just dead in here. Or you enter a room and you go, there's a peace on this. There's a sense on this that I can't find anywhere outside of these doors. And, I, and, and John Mark, who ended up uh, being my boss and uh, kind of my mentor in church planting and how to be a pastor, he um, opened up the scriptures in a way I'd never heard before. And I just started coming back every single Friday. Some of you maybe even were there. And um, it was just this, every Friday, amazing encounters with God. And so I just got this taste in my, in my mouth. I couldn't get out of my mouth. I'm like, I, I need his presence. So I, I began this just process. And some of you, you, you have this in your life as well. I would spend hours in my room just listening to worship music, reading the Bible. I'm like, I didn't know that this was actually useful. And I'm like, opening it up. I'm like, there's actual wisdom in here that helps me live my life. I'm not only, not only just wisdom, I'm actually encountering God through it. I'd wake up early in the morning and, and I would just spend time. I love to pr- play the guitar and sing and I would worship. And, and I just began this lifestyle of like, I have one hunger and it's his presence. That's it. That's all that I want. And so, you know, um, I ended up going to George Fox, um, and uh, yeah, probably some people from George Fox in the house. Okay. <laughs> all right. All right. Okay. Bruins, calm down. Um, so I ended up going to George Fox, and just that whole time, God's stoking this fire in me. He's like, just for his presence, that's it. And, I, and so then I graduated from Fox. I started working at the church and um, I got this weird thought in my head that what it meant to be a pastor was to have all of the answers. And so I started reading. I, I went to seminary. I studied like all day, every day, just I'm going to have something new, like a bomb to drop on the church when I preach next or whatever. And I'm like, and, and that, that's just what I gave my life to. And, and what it ended up doing is it actually separated me from my destiny, from what I was called to do, which was to be about his presence. There's nothing wrong with study. It's a great thing. But it actually took me, it took my focus and it put it on something else than what I'd been created for personally. And so over the past couple of years, this is how this church has really come to be in my heart, is the Lord actually freed me up. He said, you could actually start a church that's solely based around my presence. Like y- y- you don't need the answers, you need an encounter. 
And, and we're not chasing after emotions. If that's what you think, you go, oh, they just are all about. No, no, no. I, I actually don't. Sometimes there's no emotions attached to the encounter, but I just want him to show up. That's, that's our heart. Um, and, and so last year, about a year ago, my wife, Emily, and I, um, we, were, we knew that church planting was coming soon for us. And we really asked God, like, give us a people and give us a place. Where would you have us go? And uh, we had so many different ideas, uh, Brooklyn to uh, Berkeley, all, all over the place. And the Lord, he, in what conversation one time we had, he just said, Newburgh. And all of a sudden, there was all this peace on Newburgh. Um, now, every time I meet somebody and I tell them that I'm planting a church in Newburgh, they're like, oh, well, did you know that the Guinness Book of World Records actually named Newburgh as having the most churches per capita? I'm like, crap, I didn't know that. Why didn't, did you know that? Like, and here I am, like, what are, you, what are we doing here? You know, normally you're like, where's the most lost? Where are the people who, like, they've never heard the gospel before. We're going there. I'm like, Newburgh, like, I like it there, but really, God? And, uh, you know, so I get people asking me all the time, like, hey, we got plenty of good churches here. Like, you don't need to plant a church here. It, we already have a lot of things going on. Um, so why are we doing this? Why are we planting this church? Um, we, we, what you need to know from the very beginning is that we just want to go where he's going. We don't want to go any further than that or any shorter than that. We're just, our whole goal as a, as a leadership team is just to get in his presence and go, okay, where are you moving? Where's their life on something? And we just want to join it. And what we realize in Humility is that there's a lot of really great things happening already in churches in Newburgh, and we just are, I guess God's calling us just to join in line with them and to bless them and to bless what he's already up to here in Newburgh. Um, so so that's, that's why we're here. Now, um, the plan for the next 12 uh, weeks or so is to work through the culture of Saints Hill Church by looking at our vision and values. Um, we're we're going to take one week to talk through each value and, uh, and, and kind of go in depth into the 10 core values that we have. Um, but before we do that today, um, what I want to look at is our vision. What is the vision for Saints Hill Church? Many of you, uh, you're probably visiting, you're, you're actually checking it out to see whether this is a church that you you could align with, whether this church has a vision that you can get behind and champion. Um, and so having the vision and understanding it would be helpful. So to do that, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6, it's in the New Testament. First book in the New Testament, actually. And uh, it's one of the four Gospels, or one of the ways that I like to think of the Gospels are the documentaries of the life of Jesus. Um, and so that's really where we find our vision is in Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to be looking at verse 9. Now, many of you guys have probably heard uh, this passage um, maybe a few times, if not hundreds of times. Um, uh, but I think that there's something actually new and fresh in a, in a particular line in this passage for St. Hill Church. So it says this in verse 9, when Jesus was asked, how do we pray? This is what he said. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Our vision is the same vision that Jesus had, and that's that the earth would look more and more like heaven through the influence of his people. 
or in Jesus' language, on earth as it is in heaven. Now, um, here's what this means practically. It means set your expectations and your life aim on the goal of heaven just like Jesus did. The same aim that Jesus had, that's what we want to have. And this, this language, on earth as it is in heaven, is really the biblical language for revival. Now, um, you've probably heard the word revival, but it's actually not in the scriptures. You don't see the word revival ever show up in the scriptures. Instead, we have this phrase, on earth as it is in heaven. Now, um, how many of you guys understand that God is attracted to things that are dead? Do you know that? A little bit of response would be great. It's cool if not. Um, he's attracted to things that are dead because he's a God who resurrects. That's just what he does. So he's actually looking for dead things in your life. He's like a magnet to them, and he targets them because he's looking for things to raise to life. It's just what he does. It's in his nature. And he's looking for dead things in your church to raise to life. And so he's, he's actually wanting to point those things out so that he can then, not so that he can shame you or that he can say, see, you're not good at everything, so just have a little humility. No, no, no. He's pointing them out so that you might experience victory in that thing. He, he's a resurrection God. But when we say the word revival, there's a lot of connotations to it. So what do we mean when we say revival? Like, what is revival? Well, um, my favorite description of revival comes from a Scottish pastor from the 1940s named Duncan Campbell. Here's how he described it. He says, I do not mean a time of religious entertainment with crowds gathering to enjoy an evening of bright gospel singing. I do not mean sensational or spectacular advertising. In a God-sent revival, you do not need to spend money on advertising. Revival is a going of God among his people and an awareness of God laying hold of the community. In revival, men and women who until then had no concern for spiritual things begin to seek after God. That's revival, and that's what we want. Revival is, it's an awareness of God. Next slide, I think we have a little list there. It's an awareness of God taking hold of a community. It's like, whoa, you know, how many of you guys understand that it's possible for God to be in a space and you not know it? J Jacob found himself in Bethel, and he actually had to have a dream of where he saw angels descending and ascending from earth to heaven to understand that God was actually moving in a space. So we want to see Newburgh actually become aware God is present and he's moving. So it's awareness of God. It's repentance of sin and then salvation. It's people realizing repentance isn't this scary word like you broke a moral code and now you need, to, you need to change your ways or else. Repentance, all it means is it's I'm changing my mind and my actions to be in line with the truth. And if the truth sets me free, then repentance is always just an opportunity for you to get more free. It's the Holy Spirit pouring out. If you, if you can't tell already, we are passionate about the Holy Spirit. The Spirit was given to us, it says in the scriptures, as a down payment for what's to come. In other words, it, it was like, God was like, I want you to have a taste of what your future is going to be like, of what heaven's going to be like. So he gives us the Holy Spirit, not only so that we might experience the fruit of the Spirit internally, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, all of that. But it's so that we might be empowered by the Spirit to do the same things that Jesus did. I'm going to get into that a little bit more later. But the revival's character and family change. You look at your family, you're like, it's far from looking like the presence of God is there. 
Okay, that's fine. We're inviting the presence of God to come actually be present within the family, to actually change your character as an individual. And then it's cultural renewal. You know, one of the things specifically that Newberg is it, it's struggling with is uh, there's been a suicide recently, um, just last year at George Fox. Um, and, and then there was, I just um, heard this last week, there was a young man who overdosed, um, whose, whose family was close to some of the families here and at the church. And um, I just, gosh, I think about that and I go, what if God's presence was more tangible than depression? Like, could that happen in an entire city? I actually think it could by the influence of Jesus' people setting their aim on heaven to see that happen in their town. You would be surprised and amazed at what could happen. Now, now revival isn't, it's, it's, it's not a big white tent. It's not a, a charismatic speaker. It, it's not power detached from presence. Many of you, when you think of the negative uh, side effects of revival, what you're imagining is an expression of power that's detached from the presence of God. It's we're handling snakes and we're knocking people over and we're hitting people with dinner jackets. All so that, you know, we can show, hey, God's powerful and you better watch out. No, that's not revival. When revival happens, it's God's power, but there's a tangible presence of his sweetness. That's why we don't need a huge band to actually encounter God, because it's not about what we do, it's about when he comes. <laughs> Revival's not sweaty. We, uh, Jake, Jake, I think you coined this, but um, on our leadership team, we, 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 we kind of gauge things. We're like, should we do that? Does that make us sweaty? Here's why. Because we actually, we've been, it says in the scriptures that every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms has been given to us. So what it means is that we actually don't have to work for it. See, there's so many, we, and with, when we talk about revival, we get into two modes, and I, and I've, I heard it even today. Um, one mode of revival is, God, just bring revival, please, will you? The other side is, ah, oh, remember those good old days? Man, God sure did move back in the 70s with the Jesus people. Man, that was cool. One is reminiscing, one is begging, and they, both of those ways of thinking about revival ignore the fact that he wants it more than you want it. And so actually our job when it comes to actually wanting an outpouring of the Holy Spirit is just to say, hey, God, this is what you promised. And so we're just excited to see what you're going to do. And then it's looking around you and celebrating the, and honoring what God's already up to rather than ignoring that and saying, no, that's not big enough. I don't think that's actually it. And then lastly, uh, revival isn't ministry done at the cost of family or individual health. Sometimes you, you see people going after revival and it like destroys them as a person. You're like, whoa, how did that happen? Or, or you see like the family pushed aside, like, sorry, church, my family comes before you as a pastor and your family should come before anything that you do within our church. We work from a place of health in the family. I never want my marriage to be doing worse than the church is doing. I never want my family to be doing worse than the church is doing. That's my priority because the church actually is a family and it takes its cues from how God has actually planned us to have families. But here's the thing. Revival is great. Um, you look down through history and you see times of the church drifting away and then you see the church regaining vision and focus and, and the sense of revival and reformation. Um, but I don't know about you. I don't just want a season. 
I, I think that these marching orders of on earth as it is in heaven go beyond a season of God's presence and into a lifestyle of forever communion with the Father, living with the same power and peace that Jesus lived with. The reality is that a lifestyle of revival is accomplished far more by surrender than by begging God for it. And so what I want to focus on today is, is, is uh, kind of two thoughts that stem from a passage that has really uh, captured my imagination. I want to talk about us as the people of God becoming the fruit of the future. And I'm going to explain that in just a moment. Um, how many of you guys, you've read the story of uh, Joshua leading the Israelites into the promised land? Just like show of hands. Okay, a lot of you are familiar with it. Um, Moses is gone. Joshua takes over leading the Israelites uh, to the land of Canaan. And um, what I had never seen before is that Israel spends a year on the border of the promised land. They actually spend a, a year, they're in the wilderness, and they're just right on the border of the promised land. And, and here's what happens in Joshua uh, 5.12. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate the produce of Canaan. Now you might look at that and go, okay, so what? Here's the deal. Manna had been given to the Israelites as a way of sustaining them while they were in the, mil in the wilderness before they got to the promised land. But they get to the promised land and they're on the border. And that year they actually eat the produce of Canaan instead of the manna. Why? Um... They're eating, they're tasting, they're getting a glimpse of what is to come in their future before they've gotten there. So before they even enter the promised land, they're actually enjoying the fruit of the promised land while they're still in the wilderness. Why? Why would God do that? Why not just take them in and let them have the food then? Well, you guys know that there are certain tastes that are acquired, right? Right? Like, um, I, when I was going to George Fox, I worked at this restaurant down in Dundee called Farm to Fork. It's not there anymore. But um, it was a great r restaurant. It was really my introduction to wine country. I didn't understand uh, that Newburgh had good wine because I, 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 was, yeah, I wasn't 21. So I, I grew up in, in Sherwood, close to all of these amazing vineyards. I had no idea. And I didn't really like wine, so I was just like, oh, whatever. And it's, but I started working at this restaurant, and uh, I'm discovering, I'm like, I'm like, whoa, what is pate? It's like blended meat? Oh, that's really good. And then, and then oh, what is the blue cheese? Oh, that's like mold. Should I eat that? And they're like, yes, eat it. I'm like, I like it. It's good. And, and they're like, uh, have you ever had, you know, any, a, a Pinot before? And you're like, most people like Cabernet Sauvignon, and then they, they move on to Pinot eventually, you know, because uh, it's really kind of an acquired taste. I'm like, oh, I don't know if I like it. But the more I drank it and the more I was in the culture, how many of you guys know, the more I liked it. It's my favorite wine. I, I love living here. It's one of the perks of being, I'm planting a church in wine country. Not too bad. Um, here's why. Because God often brings blessings from heaven into our reality so that we would acquire a taste for the things of God rather than settling for what has become normal in the wilderness. You see, we actually have the privilege of living on the border where heaven is in breaking, we're promised, a tra we're promised a trajectory, according to Revelation chapter 21, that one day heaven will come and make the earth new. But we are the people who live in the in-between period. One foot in heaven, one foot on earth. 
You see, the Israelites, they ate the fruit of their future so that they would be drawn into that future rather than being persuaded to go another direction. Now, it does not take too hard of a look uh, to look around you and see that things are not heavenly around the world, right? Um, but, but here's the deal. Christ's death, it, it wasn't like a golden ticket for you to escape hell or for you to escape this earth when you die. Like C.S. Lewis said, it, it, Christ's death and resurrection was like a drop of color into a glass of water. You know what happens when a color, when color is dropped into a glass of water? Initially, you can kind of see uh, it, it separate from the water, but eventually that color will begin to taint and color the entire glass of water. You see, the cross began to, a spread of the kingdom that will one day color the whole earth. And, and we, just like the Israelites, actually live on the edge of that reality. And so our role... What's our role in, in all of this? Our role is the same role that Jesus had. It's to reconcile heaven and earth through our receiving of the Holy Spirit. Not like, hey, I have a theology of the Holy Spirit, but I'm functionally cessationist. No, it's like I have a theology about who the Spirit is, and I'm open to receive all that the Spirit has for me in my life. And by us eating the fruit of God's future, the body and the blood of Christ. And then to become that fruit of humanity's future, so that when people get around us, they actually start to acquire the taste of heaven. They actually get around us and they go, oh, that peace that you have. What? How? Your, your life is going crazy right now. Or that joy. It's like not dependent upon whether things are going well. Or, or, or you prayed for that person and they actually got better? They were healed? How? How? It's because you have spent time feasting on God's fruit, his Holy Spirit, the body and the blood, and it's actually transformed you into the kind of person who becomes the fruit that the people around you might feast on as well. Now, um, there are so many implications, and this is really ground zero for Saints Hill, so many implications about this call and about that identity. And really, all of our values stem uh, from our leadership team looking practically at what a heaven-saturated life looks like. We've spent, I don't know, how long? A couple years, Andoni, Jake, and I, and our wives, really going after God. What does a heaven-saturated life look like when nobody's watching when you're not at church, what does it actually look like? And so we're going to spend much of the next 12 weeks looking at each of those specific values and how they actually come to be in a person's life. But tonight, I think there is a specific call on two areas for us to become the fruit of the future here at Saints Hill Church. And that's becoming a people of power and peace. A people of power, but also a people of peace. Um, now, often these two uh, words don't go together, right? Power and peace, right? Um, when you think of power, you may think of like Pol Pot or Hitler or like a superhero villain. Who's, they, they're the ones who want power. You know, they're like, I need power, right? We, we, we don't want to do that. Um, they're, they're the ones always wanting it, right? So um, when we think about power, at worst, what we think is absolute power corrupts what? Absolutely, Right? It's like anytime we see humans get a hold of power, oh, just wait, 
Just wait, it's going to be bad. Um, and at best, when you get power, uh, there could be an anxiety in your life for what to do with it. You're like, I, I got this authority, I, got, I, ha I have this position in my career, or in a family, or in a city, and uh, I just don't want to become like that guy, or like that girl. I don't, I'm not going to do that, right? And, and so you end up actually living with a sense of authority and power that could be God-given, but because you live in fear, the decisions that you're making are made in fear, and they actually tend to do a lot, of, a lot more self-protection instead of leveraging your power on behalf of people who don't have any. But I think that for a follower of Jesus, this is a false dichotomy because the correction to abuse is not non-use, it's correct use. You guys know that? We see abuses all over our society, and so normally our reaction to abuse is, I want nothing to do with that. And sometimes God actually has something for you in that, and when you say, I, don't want, I want nothing to do with the abuse, you also say, I want nothing to do with the correct use. See, we were actually designed to be powerful people. It says in the scripture that the same power that rose Jesus from the grave is alive in you. Like, when was the last time you spent a day just meditating on that? You're like, I'm going to write that down, and while I'm driving, I'm going to think about what the implications would be if the same power that rose Jesus from the dead was alive in me. What would it mean? And then before you went, to, before you, you know, uh, went into a meeting, you thought, okay, the same power that rose Jesus from the dead is alive in me. I, I honestly challenge you to do that. I think it would do an interesting thing to your identity. Um, Jesus said at the very least we would do the same things that he did. You want to know what the baseline is? It's like raise the dead. <laughs> it's cleanse the sick. It's cast out demons. It's proclaim the gospel. That's, he's like, he's like, baseline, what Christians do is they do what I did. Are we doing that? But we're not supposed to be a people of power that are disconnected from his peace. See, the connection between power and peace is that our power isn't from a place of gifting or personal force, but a place of peace. See, notice that on earth as it is in heaven, it's not a battle cry from the cross. You know, it's not like Jesus is on the cross and he's like, Oh, before I go, on earth as it is in heaven, go just force the kingdom into places. He doesn't do that, right? Instead, on earth as it is in heaven is set within the context of a prayer of dependence. Our Father, holy are you. Give me what I need today. Forgive me, Lord. It's all in the context of I'm dependent on you. Why? I think it's so that we wouldn't seek heaven on earth through adrenaline, but instead through peace, through a place of dependence. Peace is powerful because it won't give the enemy a pro or a problem more of a place of influence than the power of God in your life. That is the posture that this prayer puts us in. Uh, peace is a place of strength because peace is ultimately rooted in a belief in God's goodness. That's why whenever you question God's goodness, instantly anxiety comes rushing in. I, I know there's a lot of reasons why people have anxiety. I think a, a large part of anxiety in the United States is because a lot of people don't trust God. Anytime that I've found anxiety in my life, it's like I can trace it back. Oh, I just, I don't think you're good enough to care about this. I don't think you're good enough to do this. It is always a questioning of his goodness. Uh, Graham Cook, he says this, just a great quote. 
He says, perception is the key to power. How you see yourself in him will provide you with the keys to victory in every situation. Whatever we focus on, we give power to. Take your eyes off the negative and you will disempower it. God is always going to focus on your new nature because he killed your old one. We need to hear that. God is always going to focus on your new nature because he killed your old one. Rest is a weapon against the enemy. He cannot penetrate your peace. You see, in our culture, peace is the absence of something. It's the absence of war. It's the absence of argument. It's the absence of striving, the absence of racism, or or whatever it is. Fill in the blank. But in the kingdom, peace is not the absence of something. It's the presence of someone. Those are very different things. And so God never brings his peace without his power because when he brings his peace, he's bringing himself. In fact, in John chapter 20, uh, right before he leaves the disciples, he says, peace be with you. And then he breathes on them. He says, receive the Holy Spirit because you cannot disconnect God's powerful spirit from the peace that he brings. So so here's the deal. We don't, as Saints Hill Church, we don't want to simply become a non-anxious presence. That's only good for you as an individual. You're like, hey, I'm not anxious. This is great. That's just the absence of something strenuous being in your life, honestly. But we want to become people of peace. And what that means is when you become a person of peace, you become a person of the presence so that everyone who gets around you gets a taste of that presence and of that peace. It becomes a gift to others rather than just enjoyed by yourself. So two commitments, if you're taking notes, write these things down. Two commitments for us as a church. The first is this. I want us as a church to have a commitment to dependence. A commitment to dependence. Evan Roberts uh, was a young man. He was 26 years old when he led the Welsh Revival. Just amazing guy. I'm going to do a whole revival series one of these days and, and talk about revival history. Um, but but he, he lived by these four principles of dependence that are just fascinating. He said this. He says, first, I must take great care to do all that God says and that only. There's many of us that when we get to ministry, we go, I'm going to do everything that I've heard God said and more because it's awesome. And then you find yourself burnt out and emotionally drained because you stepped into something that you didn't have grace for. He wasn't calling you to that. He was calling you to this. So this is what Evan said. I only do what God says. Second, to take every matter, however insignificant to God in prayer. No matter what it is, I'm going to live a lifestyle of dependence and bring it to him. Why? Because this is the model of prayer that Jesus has given us. It was the model that he lived with the Father. Third, to give obedience to the Holy Spirit. Wow. If you just did everything that the Holy Spirit asks you to do, you would live a very radical life. Fourth, to give all glory to him. How good is that? What if we became a people that we just said, yeah, there's four keys in my life and it's, and it's these four things. It's like, I'm only going to do what God wants me to do. I'm going to bring every matter to him, no matter how insignificant. I'm going to give obedience to the Holy Spirit and all glory goes to him, no matter what. First commitment, that we would be committed to dependence. Second commitment, that we would be committed to gratitude. Peace and joy are those sorts of things that don't come from a focus on them, but they're actually derivative of something more profound. When you focus on, I'm just going to get peaceful, you're probably not going to get peaceful. Or I'm having a really bad day, I'm just going to get joyful, you're probably not going to get very joyful. 
Peace and joy come from focusing on something that's greater than peace and joy, and that's gratitude. It's, it's thankfulness. There is so much power in thankfulness. Uh, Jim, one of our elders, his daughter Sophie, she's 24, 25 years old. She has a massive brain tumor um, that they ju- she just had surgery on, and they removed a lot of it, but took up a lot of her face and uh, into her head. And, um, and, and he, he, she sent a letter out to a bunch of people right before she went into the surgery the next day. And um, in her letter, she just started thanking people for things and talking about how grateful she was and how her gratitude, it just, it's just chilling when you read that. Gratitude has the ability to change your attitude. It has the ability to, it fosters an environment where God's like, that's where peace can grow. That's where joy can grow. You know, the Bible says that the joy of the Lord is your strength. You're no stronger than your joy. See, our power doesn't come from effort or getting a leg up on others, but it comes from the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. So I want you to pause for a moment and think about this. What, what would your relationships look like? Like seriously, clear your laps off, put your phone down, whatever you need to do. Think about this. What would your relationships look like if you were at peace and had an abundance of God's presence in your life? What would change in your relationships? What would change between you and your spouse? What would change between you and your kid? What would, what would it look like if your whole life you're like, yep, I just am committed to peace no matter what. So, no, so when I feel myself getting off into anxiety, I'm going to say, where did I leave my peace? Oh, I left it here because I believed that God. I'm going to repent and bring myself back into alignment to get your peace on this matter, to get your peace on this issue. What, what, would, what would your felt reality Like, I'm talking emotions here. What would your felt reality be if you were known as a person of joy? Like, when your name's mentioned, you're like, they have so much joy. Where'd they get all that joy? Think about this. Even close your eyes on this one. This is going to be a good one. You're going to do a little imagining. If you had the same power that Jesus had, what would you want changed? What would you go after? You're like, okay, on earth as it is in heaven, what doesn't look like heaven here? I have the same power that rose Jesus from the dead. He said to expect the same things. What am I going to go after? Maybe it's something simple. It's like, what I need to go after is reconciling with my brother. What I need to go after is figuring out my relationship with my wife. It might be something more profound. It might be something that's, Uh, What I would go after is I'm so tired of cancer and I'm going to, I want Newburgh to be a cancer free zone. Like when people come into Newburgh, not only do they feel at peace in the presence of God, they get healed. There's been several prophetic words about Newburgh and about our church plant that as people would come into this valley, it would no longer be a a place where people are uh, depressed or sad or feel stagnant in life, but it would actually be a place where people go, whoa, what is that? Oh, there's something here. See, um, these are the beginning thoughts of revivalists. And this is what we're going after as a church. So my question to you is, why not now and why not us? 
Why not now? Why not us? The revivals that I've looked at in the past, the Hebrides revival, the Welsh revival, the Azusa Street revival, were all led by people who had one thing in common, and it was that they had nothing to lose. And so they just said, you know what? I'm not going to spend my life being distracted by other things. I'm going to be distracted by you alone, God. That's it. That's the call in my life. And they gave themselves to that. See, I actually believe that Newburgh will look more and more like heaven through an influence of people who are marked by peace and power, committed to dependence, committed to gratitude. Let's stand together as we close.